In this series of conversations, we'll be discussing global food sustainability with guests who bring a deep understanding of the environmental and cultural challenges facing our society and creative ideas on how to address them. I'm Ash Sweeting. Today we are joined by Dr. Matthias Hess from UC Davis. Matthias is a microbiologist who has focused on researching one of the most biologically diverse environments known to humanity, the ruminant microbiome. So what I've been doing over the last, I would say now, what, 10, 15 years is really looking at um, the microbiome, so the microbiome community in ruminant animals. And I got really interested in that aspect because they are really a great systems to study to get an understanding of how different microbes work together to break down um, recalcitrant, so resistant biomass, plant material. And so we have been looking into the different microbes that participate in this overall process of converting that plant material into smaller molecules that then can be utilized by the animal. And I, when I started out, I was specifically interested in microbes that uh, were responsible for these biomass degradation processes. Now, over the years, I shifted a little bit of my interest into microbes that are really participating in the production of methane. So while there are a lot of molecules that are being generated uh, doing that process that can be utilized by the animal, um, there's also a byproduct, which is methane, that is being released in the atmosphere. Now, the problem with methane when it's being released from that process is that first of all, you lose a lot of energy um, that is problematic for the animal, but in the bigger picture for people who are actually raising those animals because you have to feed them. Um, and so the more energy you lose in a form of methane, the more feed you have to provide, that means it becomes more costly to raise that animal. On the other aspect what's really interesting is um, unfortunately that methane that's being released is also a huge problem uh, ecologically so the methane is basically functioning as a greenhouse gas so i'm interested in not only understanding what's happening how these microbes convert plant material into partially into methane but I'm also interested in finding solutions to how can we actually reduce methane production. Do you want to just give a bit of background in terms of, you know, how, how complex is that methane production? How many processes are there in creating methane? Um, and I guess that's with a, a, a view of if there's more than one way spot that it's created or a more complex process that's created, does that also mean there's more opportunities to intervene in that process to prevent it from being created? 
That's a good question. So I think that's, unfortunately, it's more complicated than, than I wish it would be. But that's the reason why there are so many people working on it. So I give you a little bit of a, maybe an idea of how complicated it is and why it's so complicated. If you think about how the mic, so the, what I'm going to say, the microbiome, which means the microbial community, the different microbes, then we, we basically put it all together. We call that microbiome. And so that evolved over thousands and thousands of years. And if you think about um, that, we can take a cow and we can basically feed different, we provide them with different plant material. They have different capabilities of breaking that down. So they can shift their microbiome towards degrading different um, diets that we feed them. And so what makes it so complicated is that if you have a metabolic process that works for one particular diet, you shift the diet or you change the diets, you might also see a shift in these metabolic processes, how they really how important they are for a specific breakdown for a particular um, material. So it, it is really the ability of the animal to basically adjust to these different diets is really reflected by the different microbes that might be adjusting to these um, compos or to the composition of that feed. And you also shift the different importances of these you know, individual processes that are taking place. So even if you develop a solution for, um, you know, in one case, when you have, when you just, let's assume you're just feeding a pure corn diet, which is never happening, but just let's assume for the sake of simplicity, and then you shift that to a different uh, feed, you will have, you, you, you will have just a totally different a metabolic process that actually occurs in the rumen. And so one solution for that might work for the corn diet might not work for a different diet. In, in terms of what you're um, looking at and who you're speaking with, where what do you see as the exciting work um, in this space? So I think what, what is really exciting and if you, if you I mean, what, People have been, so the thing is that people have been trying to figure that out for the last, what, almost like 50, 60 years now. So it's not anything that people haven't really thought about. The, the really exciting portion that we are involved in right now is that we have these techniques where we can look at microbes that we can't cultivate. So in the past, people have been really um, struggling or have to basically take, they have to take their rumen samples and try to get these microbes in culture. So they have to grow in a laboratory in order to study them. Now, these days, there are these techniques where you can actually extract, the, you know, different molecules from your sample. So we can extract DNA or RNA or proteins. And then we can actually start trying to understand what these microbes do based on these molecules that we can determine. So it's like reading different books, um, books that we were not able to access before, what microbes are actually present and what is it that they might do. Um, and so 
that's the exciting part is really these new technologies where we can now look into microbes, what they are doing, what they potentially might do. And then we actually have these technologies where we even can go in further where we can look at genes so we can generate genomes, right? So we can, that's basically like the blueprint. So that would be your book. But then we can uh, look at RNA or proteins. And that's more like, um, that would be in that book, let's say it's a cookbook with hundred recipes. Um, but when you do a, a, when you look at gene expression, you basically would just read that one particular recipe that if you go back to methane, methane production, you know, you look at all these different recipes that would be useful to break down all these different uh, plant materials, but you are only interested in what's happening today when they're, you know, digesting this particular feed, and then you can look specifically into those genes, into that recipe that's needed for breaking down that particular plant, and then you can even go further in if you metabolic process for methane production, you can zoom in and you can look into that. Um, and so that's kind of the, one of the most exciting parts or technologies that we have and that are, that, that become accessible to us. And um, we are getting to that point where we also can read or where we can get an understanding about how different microbial populations are contributing to that aspect. So in the past, people have been mostly working with bacteria um, and then also with other microbes that are called archaea. Those are really re relevant for methane production. Um, but the other aspect is there are also microbes, so fun fungi, there are a lot of fungi in the rumen. Um, and people are starting to understand now that they're actually, so we, we didn't know until the seventies that there are actually my, uh, fungi that can grow in the absence of oxygen. So it's only over the last 40 years, basically, that, that we understand that actually there are fungi in the rumen. Um, and we also know by now, which has been actually really discovered by these uh, DNA techniques, that these fungi are really important for uh, biomass degradation. And putting it all back into the big picture is you have to degrade your biomass first. You have to generate smaller molecules that can be utilized by, utilized by these methanogens, by these archaea. Um, and so if you don't break down your biomass, or specifically, let's say, fungi, um, then you can't take that, those smaller molecules and convert them into, into methane. So it's only over the last couple of years that we are starting putting together the more complete picture of the different aspects that really no, need to go into that recipe in order to make that work. So. And um, that's awesome. That's, um, I actually wasn't aware there was that many fungi um, in the room. And so thank you for that. Um, so we don't, hold on, we don't know, we know, the thing is that we know that there are quite a few, but we don't necessarily know how many yet. So that it's relatively unexplored um, and it's relatively challenging. We understand we, we can cultivate them more and more. Um, and it was only until recently that we were thinking only that there are like four or five different groups of these anaerobic fungi. And that has been expanded over the last, now I guess, four years that we actually think that 
we have about eight different phylogenetic groups. So it's a rapidly expanding field. And in terms of, I guess, in terms of those dynamics, is it, you know, this is probably a bit too black and white of a question, but how much of it's or the relationship between what's the interaction between all these species and how they're communicating, interacting compared with just their presence? Is that something that's significant or am I barking up a wrong tree there? No, I think the interactions are actually the most important. So the interactions and then really the functionality. So the presence itself um, is important, but in the end, it's more important which of these are active. So what we see when we, you know, if you look at time courses, you have different organisms playing different different role at different times. So um, when you take these, when you do these studies where you look at DNA or proteins or whatever, you have, you have snapshots in time, you know, in time and in space, and you see differences in space, but also in time. So um, an example can give you, for example, when we looked at one particular sample where we looked at the proteins being expressed, we could see that in that particular case, the fungi were contributing to some specific enzymes that are responsible for biomass degradation. Um, but other enzymes from similar, that had a, have a similar function, but came from bacteria were not um, important at that time. But we know that these enzymes are involved and are also produced by these bacteria. But our assumption is basically that at this particular point, the bacteria were not necessarily participating in that particular reaction. So depending on where you are looking, you know, on the plant material in the, in the rumen and at what time you see a shift of these populations and what, you know, what they contribute. Think about it. If you, so these fungi, they, it, what many of those are filamentous. So many, they grow like long filaments and they're really slow in growing, but they're also really capable of penetrating the biomass really deeply. So Assumption is that the bacteria try to colonize relatively quickly, break down some of the really easy accessible uh, sugars. Yeah. Whereas now the fungi, they start to grow slowly and they kind of almost like penetrate the bio plant material slowly and they degrade material that is not easily accessible by the first batch of bacteria that basically colonize. And so there's this interplay. So you have one people come in and so it's like, you know, an army of people when they basically just try to, I mean, like, you know, if you think about how continents were colonized. So, yeah. Is there one that, even if it's just a gut feel, is there an area that kind of, you just think, think, wow, that's, that's where I'd love to throw some energy. So I think what I believe the most promising field would be to take material that's already generated. So let's see, you know, food waste or, or anything like that, that we can basically utilize and that add as a feed additive or something like that. So really, and either direct feeding or, um, or you know, extracting 
chemicals from small molecules from the food waste. That's where I would love to to see the 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 area going, because we have that would basically solve two problems at the same time. We would have basically would be able to upgrade or you know upgrade food waste or waste in general and or at the same time um, utilize that. So you know we just reduce the the waste footprint we have in that, that area. And then if you can basically utilize it to um, improve uh, improve protein production uh, for from animals, I think that would be it would be just a win-win situation without without having to you know think about generating something absolutely novel that that would basically be a different different stream. So really just utilizing what we already have and and utilize that to basically um, solve another problem. So that's where I believe I would love to see the area going, and that would be that would be I think the most valuable solution. Um, but do you see there being the same solution for grazing animals as well as fed animals, or do you think there's going to be need to be two different approaches for those um, two different production systems? I think they will be different. They will be they will be different. And I think it's just like I mean, if you think about um, you know, if you think about animals in a that you have in a feedlot, you can just basically add some feed additives, right? So you can't have that for grazing animals, but you know, there you might have to have a solution either, you know, vaccine-based or, uh, or it's, you put something in the drinking water, which is, you know, one of the sources that you can provide. So there will be different solutions, I would assume. And I think even, even, even within the same, um, animal system or like, you know, grazing or feedlot system, there will be different solutions depending where you are. Um, so again, you know, it, it will be a more, comp it's a complex problem and there will be more solutions depending on where you are, how big your operation is, you know, do you have 10 animals, do you have 20 animals? And I think, or, you know, hundreds or thousands. And I think the other thing right I believe we need to think about is is really not only methane reduction, but then also really taking that and converting that into better protein. Do you see crossover between potential solutions? So you were breaking up a little bit, but I think what you're asking is basically just if there's a uh, the potential of reducing methane and also increasing productivity. Is that right? The feed energy's lost as methane. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. If that can be captured. Um, yeah. and kept within the animal then that's there's you know that's the win-win no i think absolutely i think that that is where it needs to go i think that because that's kind of you know unfortunately that's kind of how, how the world works it's like um unless there is some direct impact direct benefit on the productivity side um, it will not be feasible to put it into into application so it i think by just by um, just reducing methane, that will not be sufficient to make to make a, a potential solution really make it to market. So it has to be both, and and I think it's 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 not an unreasonable expectation that this will be happening because if you inhibit methane genesis, the energy needs to go somewhere, and and then so it's not. 
yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, an overly, I mean, if we can reduce methane production reliably, um, most likely what we'll see is that protein in production will increase or so efficiency will increase. Okay, I've got, I got two more questions for you. Um, one is if you had you know, the open checkbook um, yeah. and you know, access to whatever equipment and whatever team um, you wanted um, to throw at this, what would, what, would, what would you look at doing? Um, I think I would just expand on what we are doing right now and just trying to figure really out what, what is actually happening on the molecular basis or, or on the molecular level in the rumen ecosystem. So really trying to figure out what are the molecules that are basically being transitioned between the different animal, uh, between the different microbes. And how does this change if you, you know, add different feed additives? So, you know, for example, using, using seaweed and just figure out how does this really kind of affect the molecules being shuffled around in, in, in your animals. And so, between the microbes and how that all affects each other. So I think I would be really, um, really intrigued about learning about this. I think that's just the, you know, the, the nerd in me coming out where I just want to know what's going on there. And, and then finally, what's, you know, what's, is there anything interesting, exciting you've got over the next six months, um, plans, Plans. trials <laughs> um maybe maybe just getting out of you know, out of the home and traveling i don't know <laughs> anything interesting coming up in the in the not too distant future that you can share with us oh my god i share you know at this point the only thing is like i right now i'm just um teaching a, a big class and so i'm just thinking about week to week at the next get to the next quarter so that's over and then we can focus more on research again you've been listening to a proagni podcast with me ash sweeting in conversation with associate professor Matthias hess from uc davis recorded in california february 2022 for more information on proagni antibiotic free and methane reducing products visit proagni.com